this God who calls you, calls me by name. He knows Matthew's name. And this God who's so big and yet so personal is also the God that's telling me there's stuff, there's stuff, there's beauty hidden in this darkness, but you're going to have to look for it. And and so I, I began a search and have kept note since then journal of treasures there were the treasures of the darkness of mental illness there were the treasures um, in the darkness of Matthew's death there have been treasures in the darkness as we are learning how to live again some of those treasures have been as you can imagine harder to find and I haven't always been as willing to find them but even in that darkness there has been the treasure of knowing God more intimately than I've ever known him before. And I would not trade that treasure of knowing God intimately. You're listening to the Refraining Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Swindoll Thompson, and I have one of the most incredibly special interviews to share with you, and that is with Kay Warren, co-founder with her husband, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in California. Kay, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for the invitation. Um, We have a few things in common, but I first want to talk about the fact that you are a mom of three and a Grammy of five which is probably the joy of your life. The best, the best. And every woman, I have to tell you this, every woman should become a mother so that she can become a grandmother. (laughs) I've heard that three times this week because my sister just became a grandmother and she's a Grammy too. She said, I'm not having any other spelling, but exactly as yours is spelled. So that's very, very cool. Um, And she probably said, she said, I wish I would have been a little bit nicer to my kids. (laughs) Because they gave us the grandkids. Oh, well. But you and Rick have been at the church for how many years now? 35 this year. 35 years we've been at Saddleback, which is, I don't know where they went. We were, we were 26 the last time I looked. Well, you so. know what? You look 26, so you're doing okay. And you've written several books, which we will talk about. And you have um, been doing a lot of work with those who are terminally ill and with the AIDS projects that you've been involved with. And... As we are going to talk about today, your most latest endeavor has been with mental illness and mental right. wellness and those who are in need. As we get going, I would love for you to tell me about Matthew, the son that um, you lost two years ago. Hmm. Well, Matthew um, means uh, gift of God and his middle name is Beloved, so David. So we called him, he was our beloved gift of God from the very beginning. And um, I had a really difficult pregnancy with Matthew. Uh, I was in bed for three months. I had this allergic reaction that sort of mimics rheumatoid arthritis. And so I was in tremendous pain for the last trimester, completely bed fast. Uh, I couldn't even get out of bed to go to the bathroom. We, uh, overnight, I went from being perfectly healthy to this allergic reaction that, that had me ill for the you know most time that he was last trimester and so we've always wondered if um, if somehow in that when he was in the womb and he was developing if some of the 
um, you know, chemical changes that happened. If that had a contributing factor to some of his later problems, I don't know. I just know that um, almost from the beginning, he really struggled. He was different than my other two kids. Um, he he felt things so deeply, and uh, I got to where I couldn't even play Candyland or shoots and ladders with him. You know, it was a, those little toddler games because he, if he lost or something happened, he he would throw. I mean, like throw the game and then be mad for hours and cry. And it was like, what? You know what? I didn't know what to do with this little tiny person who was struggling with such intense feelings. And um, when he was about seven, he came home from school and started saying he was sad. Every day he would come in from school and say, I'm sad. And and I, I couldn't figure that out. We had moved from across town and I, Rick and I first thought, well, it's because he's left, you know, his neighborhood friends that he grew up with and he's feeling sad. And that made sense to us. Um, but we just we didn't know that children could experience depression, so it took us a long time to figure out that no, this is more than just the situational, you know, moving and transitioning. It was he was clinically depressed, and from so at seven, clinical depression, then ADHD, then these what I call these initials just started stacking up. There was you know depression and ADHD and panic disorder, and by the time he was eleven. Um, he was diagnosed with early onset bipolar disorder, and then in high school, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, so OCD, and then major depression, and then suicidal ideation, and it just it just kept building and building and building, and and finally, probably a year and a half before he died, he um, we also got the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and that was the one that sort of made sense of a lot of the other things that he'd struggled with, because no matter what we did, no matter what you know, therapies and doctors and medication. And I mean, we just, we twisted ourselves into pretzels trying to find something that would help and make him just feel better and, and bring down the suffering. And when we got that diagnosis of, of borderline personality disorder, it, it brought into focus so much of what had happened and it, his life started to make some sense to us. And it changed the way that we, you know, reacted to him. By that time he was absolutely suicidal almost every single day. There were hospitalizations. I mean, really, the litany of, of sorrow and suffering and torment that, that he lived through is, it's almost beyond um, putting into words. It was so great. And um, it, he um, took his life on April 5th, uh, 2013. There were several other attempts where he truly tried to take his life on that particular day he didn't get up that day saying to himself you know I'm gonna I'm gonna take my life it was an impulsive thing I know I was texting him um, he had just told me about a date he had coming up on that weekend he had plans to work out at, at the gym the next day he was really trying to beef up his biceps and he's talking about you know I gotta get these <laughs> biceps bigger so I mean I know he, he was gonna upgrade his phone you know his iPhone so he had plans he had it wasn't, uh, that wasn't the day that he was gonna take his life, but something, something triggered um, the, this despair that was there all the time. But the difference that day was by that time he had acquired illegally um, a gun. And by now he had not only the desire to get rid of the pain, but he had a lethal means. And that became the lethal combination that he, he couldn't recover from. And so he, he he took his life on, on April 5th of 2013. I'm so sorry. Um, Thank you. I'm gonna just throw my notes to the side. 
and say, um, it's hard for you to talk about it without crying. In fact, in one of the... Of course, I, I can't talk about it without crying. Oh, well, you did there a pretty darn good job. I'm over here well, crying, choking back the tears, <laughs> going, oh my gosh, what do you say? And yet you say, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine walking into that. Yeah. And um, you're you. right. Um, there are a lot of signs to suicide, and that doesn't fit very many of them at all. He, yeah, he fits some of the signs. There are some people that, and actually with borderline personality disorder, having a chronic suicidality um, is one of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. So he actually does fit that. And, um, and people with major depressive disorder, just he, he had such a complicated, his was not a simple, how do I say it? Sometimes mental illness is on a spectrum. And you know, if you lose your job and it's natural to feel some depression and anxiety, you break up, you have a relationship that ends, depression and anxiety are, are natural responses, but there's this spectrum, this continuum. And, and for him, it had, that, that spectrum had, had, had reached this far apex over here so that he was, he was severely mentally ill. Right. And um, yeah, and you, so. And you went through that all alone because he was, was he 27? He was 27 when he died. That's what yeah. I thought. So 27 years ago, not a lot was talked about, which is why no. we must talk about it now, because yeah. um, some of the statistics that you talked about were shocking to me. I almost fell out of bed last night when I was reading them to my husband. But that one yeah. in five, 60 Adults. million Americans in the next year will commit Adults. suicide. Adults. Well, no, sorry. That's no. That that. Let me adjust that statistic. That's how many. One in five, or 60 million Americans, are how many um, people are living with mental illness in the United States. Okay. That's how many people will experience a mental illness in the coming year. Um, there are about 41,000 people in the United States who take their life every year. A million worldwide. Um, but it's about every 14 seconds. You know, about every 14 seconds, somebody, um, 14 minutes, pardon me, 14 minutes, somebody takes their life in the United States. And that is, it's more than uh, twice as many murders, um, you know, twice as many suicides as there are murders in the United States. So it's still a staggering number. And That's what was staggering about. to me, is that there are, for every murder, there are two suicides. Yes. The other staggering one is that the largest um, support for mental illness in your county, in the Los Angeles County, is the prison system. Yeah, L.A. County Jail. I about fell out of bed. Yeah. Did you have anyone that you could talk to? Because as a parent, um, I happened to find in 2006 my daughter's suicide note. Mm. She had not been able to follow through with that, but wow. that led into a domino effect yeah, that that's shocking. led us to be totally isolated because yeah. um, it was so not understood. And I remember sitting on the floor of a bookstore because I had no money and looking through everything because then I found out that she was cutting and self-harming and have asked her permission to share this publicly um, because it's her story. And she said, Mom, if anything in my story will help anybody else, then you're free to share that. Um, yeah. And Kay, I, I did what it sounds like you and Rick did. You go to doctors and you go to helpers, you go to therapists, you go to people that you think are going to listen and help. And most often 
you're looked at as you're a poor parent or you need right. to pray more or right. as you know the life voice study that was done last year right here's what yeah. you need to do more of as if you haven't done everything but turn yourself into a pretzel and stay there yeah no there's um it's it's pretty it's pretty sad and and as you said when matthew was diagnosed with depression at seven because we didn't even know that children could be depressed that's why it took us so long to realize that something was more than just a little bit of sadness over moving that there was no there was something seriously wrong you know with him he was grappling with mental illness and uh, so we didn't know what to do with that we we did we started therapy we started medication i mean we did as you said, everything we knew to do, we changed schools. I mean, we homeschooled, we did private school, we did private Christian school, we did public school. I mean, we just tried everything we could think of. And at one point he went to a, a special needs school. Um, and none of it really made that much of a difference. And when he was younger, I did talk about it. I, I used the terms like, well, there was a, that he had a chemical imbalance. We didn't even we didn't even really know what to call it. Right. But as he got older, he just because our lives are so public, we didn't really want to expose him to. The last thing he needed was, you know, a national news story or to be some, the poster child. For yeah, this. he uh -huh. yeah he didn't need that. He, his life was already hard enough. And so we, we did start keeping it a little more quiet as he got older and then felt like it was his to tell. Now, Matthew, he was ridiculous because he would tell strangers that he wanted to kill himself. I mean, it was like, what? You know, but he, he, was, he just was ill. And um, so he would tell people what it was that he wanted to do, that he was in so much pain, he couldn't hide it. But we let him do that telling rather than us be the ones that... Um, that shared that really widely. Um, okay, one of the things that you wrote, <clears throat> and I think it's very interesting that you wrote choosing ha choosing joy because happiness isn't enough, which is a right. fabulous title. Thank you. And in it, you say, please don't ever tell someone to be grateful for what they have left until they've had a chance to mourn what they've lost. It will yeah. take longer than you think is reasonable, rational, or even right. Right. But that's okay. True friends, unlike Job's sorry excuse for friends, I got I got something to say about Job's friends in just a second. The truest friends are helpers, are those who wait for the griever to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. They don't press pressure their friend to be that old familiar person they were used to. They're willing to accept that things are different and embrace the now scared one they love and are confident that their compassionate, non-demanding presence is the surest expression of God's mercy and suffering to their suffering friend. Your definition of joy, I love it, which is a settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately Everything's going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in all things. That is incredible. Okay, now mm. you wrote this book before and after right. you lost Matthew. And yeah. tell us the story about your necklace. Yeah, well, the, the quote about the definition of joy was, I wrote that before Matthew died. The words that you read at first about grief, that, that came out of, my, out of our loss. Um, those were not things I knew or understood um, until Matthew died. And I had to live through that catastrophic grief and listen to what other people said and 
try to meet everybody's expectations and figure out how to live again after losing a child. So that that quote about what grief looks like definitely came out of Matthew's loss. But when I wrote um, the book, Choose Joy, I, I had actually written a Bible study for a women's group, oh, like 15 years ago or longer. And it was Choose Joy. I did all this great study. I taught it. I did it at a women's retreat. And I promptly filed it and put it away in you know, a drawer in my office. And then a few years ago, when I realized that Matthew's illness was so severe and was requiring much more spiritually and emotionally than, than I had, and just realizing that he could die at any time, that I had no control over that, yes. and, um, and finding myself so low spiritually, I thought, I have got to, I've got to get this joy thing figured out because I don't know what it looks like and I, I don't know how to live it. And I remembered that I had done this study, you know, like years before. So I went and I dug it out of my file. And when I started reading through it, I realized that I hadn't changed. That in, in all those years, since the moment I wrote it and, and put it in the file and now was pulling it out years later, I was exactly the same. I had not figured out anything more about joy in those ensuing years. I was not any more joyful. I still thought it wasn't possible for me because I struggle with depression. And, um, and so here I was now facing this, this situation with my very mentally ill son who was suicidal, and I had no spiritual resources. So this time I figured out, okay, I am going to, I'm going to get this down if it kills me. I am going to read the Bible. I am going to study. I'm going to see what it is that God says. And I believe that joy is supposed to be mine. I just don't know how to get it. So well, in yes, that, and, and let me interrupt you. You also said, I was raised in a pastor's home. I knew all the things in my head. I knew all the definitions. I knew all the verses. The thing that's so hard with depression, because I struggle with depression myself. I have ADHD, which drives myself and everybody else around me crazy. <laughs> so there's a lot of grace in yeah. our house. And you want desperately to find out. What is this joy thing? Because I don't want to get out of bed, but I know this in my head, but I can't get it to my heart. Well, I just started feeling, you know, joy. It, it just seemed like maybe it was just something that people in the Bible had, you know, that that it was really one of those things that sounds good, but doesn't really have any application to real life. It's just this spiritual concept that really nobody gets. Because everywhere I looked, I couldn't think of anybody that lived with joy. I could think of people who had extrovert personalities. Yes. I could think of people who were bubbly naturally, but they still struggled when hard times hit. And so I looked around and it was like, okay, I only see it in the pages of the Bible. Is it really something that I can have and that the rest of us can have? And so that's what, you know, put me, forced me into that position of trying to learn and figure it out. So in this study and realizing that I had joy completely backwards, that it really truly had nothing to do with the externals. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that my son was suicidal. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that this world is really broken. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that I struggled with depression myself, that it could be something I could experience even if those things were present in my life, even if the external circumstances of my life were difficult or challenging or even heartbreaking. And as I read what it meant to be truly connected to God and to who he is and the fact that he doesn't change and the fact that he is the only thing in my life that is stable and is when the Psalms calls him our rock and our fortress, that David knew what he was talking about. God truly is our rock and our fortress and our unchanging reality. And when I could stay connected to him spiritually and that I could, I could take 
what he had to give me that was going to be constant no matter what changed in my life that gave me a different perspective on joy and i can truly say even though i have lost my son and the worst day of my life has already happened and even though i will never be the same again and there is a before and after of losing my son i understand joy better today than i ever have before ever before and okay, how it, it do you get there because, because I every because I understand because I understand some things about God that I didn't know before. I I understand you and I have to send our roots. Colossians two talks about how we we have to send our roots deep into God's love. Well, if you we went up to the redwoods a few weeks ago for a vacation, and the redwoods are amazing trees. Yeah. You know, they're the tallest. They're huge. They're these, yeah. they're these, they're these giants of trees. Yeah. And if you and I want to be spiritual giants, people who can last over, you know, these trees last hundreds, if not thousands of years. Well, how have they survived the storms and the droughts and the bug infestations and the forest fires and the winds that come? How, do, how does a tree survive it? How do you and I survive those things in our lives? It's the same way. You have to send your roots down deep. And I, Rick and I have spent, we're 61 and we became Christians when we were children. So we have spent more than 50 years sending our roots down deep into God's love, into his word into the relationships with other people so that when the bottom fell out for us, when the worst day of our lives, when our, when our worst nightmare actually came true, we were, we were devastated, but we were not destroyed. And the only reason that we were not destroyed for, that I can see, it's not because we, there's nothing about us that's special other than some decisions that we've made along the way to put our roots very deep into God and into his word so that when the world fell apart, when Matthew died, when we were left heaps on the floor, that we could still say, God, you are good. God, I trust you. God, your worth has never changed. Your word will not change. You are the only place for hope. And when those are the the bedrock, the foundational um, places that you that you hang your soul, that you build your own fortress, your own castle, if it's built into that, that place of who God is, then when everything around you changes, you can still be solid. You can still be steady. You can still have joy. But it, you, it's intentional. I don't know. It's intentional. I have to choose to put my roots into God. I, I, nobody else can do that for me. My, Rick can't do it for me. Right. He, can't, he can't love God for me. He can't have faith for me. He can't have hope for me. He can't decide that I'm going to have a quiet time and, and, and pray. None of those things are anything that anybody else can control. I have to make those decisions. And when and as I have and continue to make those decisions to immerse myself in the truth of who God is and in relationship with him and in quietness with him and in tears in front of him and wrestling with God through the night, that's the only way I know to get through the losses or, or the things that we're afraid of losing. Um, there just is no other way. There's nothing else stable but God. There's no, well, there's nothing else that is unchanging but God. That's right. And when, in the years that followed, um, Ashley and I participated in a program that helped her with her depression and her panic attacks. And two of the three of my children have PTSD and panic attacks mm. and anxieties. Stuff. And then Jonathan has, of course, autism and 
and a whole host of spectrum issues, yeah. like you're saying. And of course, yeah. there is no test like you were able to test your breast cancer or your thyroid. Mm -hmm. There's no test that says, oh, yes, it's right. this, this, and this. And there were there have been times, because he's been bullied as well, where he says, Mommy, I just want to go to heaven. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah. he doesn't know how to get there on his own. Mm -hmm. But the grief in my heart is so deep that there's nothing on this earth that can satisfy except what God when you watch your me. children when you watch your children struggle oh. to that level it it can it, it just slays you I mean it just it takes you to your knees because we love our children so deeply and to know that they are hurting that badly and that they hurt so badly that they want to leave this earth yeah. there's um, you know when Matthew was 12, on there was a Mother's Day and the Mother's Day he was 12 um, he'd had a really he was already feeling starting to feel suicidal we didn't know much about it we didn't understand much about it but um, we knew he was super depressed and I went in that night just to kind of tuck him in he was already in bed I was just saying good night and in the dark of his room I you know I just kind of stroked his hand and was saying good night and he said mom will you kill me and put me out of my misery. And I was so glad that it was dark and that he couldn't see my face because my mouth, you know, fell open as wide as it could. Tears were instantly in my eyes. I mean, this it's like an ice bucket grabbed my heart. And I thought, no, I'm sorry, mothers should never have to hear things like that. Mothers should never have to hear that ever. I shouldn't have to hear this on Mother's Day, the day when I'm honoring and being loved for being a mother and, and I'm celebrating the fact that I have these children and one of these kids looks at me and asks me something like that. I, I did not know what to do. I didn't know what to say. But I have never forgotten that as one of the, one of the most terrible days. And mental illness, um, when it grabs our kids, when it, it's such a thief, and when it grabs our kids and... and wraps them up in its claws. Mothers and dads feel so much grief that it's, unless you walk that road as you have, so you know what I'm talking about, unless you walk that road, you don't know how badly your heart can hurt for your child. And that's why the church can, can provide something that nobody else can. Um, as you have, I'm sure we, and you've already mentioned, you know, we sought medication, we sought help from the school, we sought therapy, we, we did everything that we knew to do. The one place we didn't get as much help was at church. And you think, well, how strange is that? You were the past, you know, you guys were the pastor of this church. But for us, there was the privacy issue. We didn't feel comfortable going to a support group. We had support groups at Saddleback, but we didn't feel comfortable going to a support group and talking about that so personal that pain and that sorrow with people that were then going to go out and see our son or so it was difficult for us to find the help that we need we didn't even understand some of the community resources that we might could have gone to you know if we'd really known but all of it speaks to churches have to come in and fill some of these gaps for parents for children for adults who are have lived with maybe mental illness for a very long time and they just don't know where else to go well, because everyone tries to fix you, or oh, they yeah. blame. Yeah. I mean, it's fixing or blaming or right. giving you answers or saying mm -hmm. things. And like like we both know, Job's friends were fantastic when they were yeah. silent. But when they opened their mouths, they just had That's they when stay, they got into trouble. <laughs> That's when I yeah. want to hit them in the face yeah. and yeah. say, why don't you just stay quiet? Uh -huh. 
Because it's being a companion. You can't fix me. Just this morning, um, as John was preparing to go to school, and we are wrestling with some trauma issues right now, mm. the only place I know to go to is God. And that's the only mm. place that I can send him to is, is his mm. word. And so we made a little piece of paper that I sent with him. And it had a couple verses because he's very worried about some things. And so I said, let's take our worries because God tells us not to. Yeah. And I, I always give them to God and I take them right back. So we're, right we're constantly playing this tug of war thing. <laughs> so I it's said, John, let's to. write down the worries. We're going to pray about those. And then he tells us to talk about what we're thankful for. So we have a little thankfulness section. And then I said, here's another piece of paper that you can just write on or you can color or do whatever with. Yeah. But go to Jesus because he is never going to go away from you. And he's never going to be asleep. And John has insomnia issues. Yeah. And so he'll wake up in the middle of the night. And I have told him, God is never asleep. So you can always talk to him. Always go to him. And then yeah. I just yeah. sit with him and stroke his hands. Yeah. Because I can't change his brain chemistry. Right. You're right. If we could, we would, you know, we would as parents, if we could change our kids, if we could, if we could fix that brain chemistry, we would do it in a heartbeat and we do our best. And, and still, we still run up against that, sometimes that intractable, intractable wall of, of mental illness. And so the commitment of a family to stay near people who are living with mental illness is profound, but it's also a place that the church can can come alongside. It's it's part of what we're supposed to do and be. Is we're supposed to walk. We're supposed to journey with each other on this. You know, they don't call it. John Bunyan called it Pil Pilgrim's Progress. It is a pilgrim road, and we do need sacred companions who will walk with us, whether we have mental illness or we don't. We all need to know that there are going to be people who journey with us. And this is something that churches can do for families living with um, children with disabilities or this hidden disability of mental illness, is to make a, a commitment and a decision to journey along with people along the life cycle, whether that means that they go from, they live a, what we would call a normal life, or they're going to live with a disability that never goes away. And um, we okay, can so do go into that. Go into that for us because you have a fabulous acrostic, and I want because it's yeah. free. And I love that you say nobody has an excuse. It's free. It's easy. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, people look at Saddleback and they say, "Well, you're this huge church. Of course, you can do this or you can do that." And th there's some truth to that. There are things that really large churches can do that others cannot. That is true. However, there are some things that absolutely every church can do, whether you're in Appalachia or Detroit or Los Angeles or Phoenix. It doesn't matter if you're rural or an urban church. There are some things that you can do that cost no money, as you say, no money, doesn't take any resources, doesn't require any staff to do it. This is just stuff that is it's like it's on the, the low-hanging fruit. It's the cookies on the bottom of the shelf. And um, we, so we use an acrostic that's church, C-H-U-R-C-H. Right. And this is what we think every church can do. We think that every church, no matter where they are, what size, how many staff or no staff, whatever, if it's a home fellowship of 15 people, it doesn't matter. Or a family. Can, or a family, exactly. You can decide to care for. You can care for and support people um, living with mental illness and their families. 
it doesn't cost any money to care. It doesn't cost a penny to have a heart of compassion. The only thing it costs is a willingness to let go of self-centeredness, to let go of apathy, to let go of fear, to let go of prejudice and decide that you're going to do what Jesus said, which is to care for people, care for the sick. It's, it was Jesus' mandate. It's, it's our job as the church. It's what we're here to do. So every single church can make a decision to care for and be a compassionate congregation. I love then, that you say that. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I yeah. have to say that that caring part to let go of self-centeredness, yeah. um, when you talk about that, we think of, oh, I like this person, as you and Rick have said, because they're like me. Right. Yeah. Um, that's funny. I don't think that Jesus <laughs> well, who hung yeah. around with all kinds of crazy guys that I think I really like. He cared. He did. But they it, were the social outcasts in some ways. Oh, completely. I mean, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the poor, they were the children. I mean, women, all of those were people not held in high esteem in Jesus' time, and that's exactly who he was with. And I, I thank you for saying that, because I do want to mention that um, we, we have this idea that in America, that friendship, you know, we, we have lots of friends and, and our criteria for friendship is, oh, you're so likable, you know, oh, you're so easygoing or you're, you know, you're just this yes. great person. I, let's be friends. Right. Or we say, oh, you like that? Well, I like that. You know, we right. have the same hobbies or we're the same interest in sports or whatever it is. And so those are the people we surround ourselves with. They're, they're likable and they're like us. But the problem with that is <laughs> that it builds friendships that are about this deep. You know, they don't go very far, and they're not built on anything that's very solid. And Where, then what happens when you change? Well, you change, or maybe something happens in your life, and you're no longer, maybe, you're, maybe your health, maybe you start having health issues, and you're yeah. not as nice, you know, as you used to be, because you're in pain, or, or right. you're struggling, or whatever. Or what if you don't like that sport anymore, now suddenly you're doing this over here, and so the friendships can change. But the, the, the difference of, of the way that God thinks of friendship is when we were at our very worst, when we were not very likable, when we were basically thumbing our nose at God and heading in the complete opposite direction, and there was no reason for him to, to want to come after us because we were you know, pretty bad in our sin and our, our um, degradation, and we had no interest similar to God. We were, he's going this way, we're going this way. He friended us. John 15, 15, Jesus said, I've called you my friends. You know, Romans 5, 8 says, when while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were heading in opposite directions, while we were at our very worst, Jesus came and said, hey, I want to make you my friends. Well, when you translate that into how we care for people, it will radically shift the way we look at friendship, and it will radically, radically change the way that we interact with each other in the body of Christ, not based on how likable we are or how much in common we have, but the fact that we've been friended by God, and now it is our job to extend that friendship to each other and to a very broken and hurting world. And yes. that doesn't cost a penny to nope. do that. Nope, it's it doesn't. A in fact, when, a people work, when people work with the disabled community or they say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go and volunteer so people get off my back. They say, I thought I was going to go help. They changed me. Yeah. Because they cared as right. love is a verb, not as um, I'm going to love for what I get. Right. 
Loving right. what I can give. Okay, take Absolutely. us to the take us to okay, the H. Okay, so the H. So the C is to make a decision to care. The mm -hmm. H is to help with practical needs. And again, it doesn't cost anything. What does it cost? It, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, people brought me meals. People right. offered to drive me to treatment. I mean, all sorts of practical help came our way because I had this physical illness. But if somebody gets a diagnosis, you know, tomorrow of, of bipolar or schizophrenia or anxiety, I can guarantee you there isn't anybody who's going to come bring a casserole or say, hey, Hey, can I drive you to your doctor's appointment? So we we separated in our minds physical physical illness. Yes, we want to surround people with care. Right. People right. have mental illness or disability. Ah, uh, not so much. They scatter. And they yeah, completely. So this H is help with practical needs. It's really simple. It's just showing up yep. and meeting the practical, emotional, physical, spiritual needs that people have. The U is to utilize volunteers and. Um, People, again, think because Saddleback's a big church that we must do all this with staff. No, we we utilize thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteers. And every church, again, whether it's a home group or really, you know, mid-sized church or big church, have people who are there who are looking for something to do, who are saying, show me what I can do. I want to serve. Show me what I can do. So there are volunteers that can be utilized. The R, powerful, powerful part that again costs no money is to remove the stigma because the stigma around mental illness is gigantic it it's just gigantic we have this idea in our minds that people who are mentally ill you know if, if i were to say to some say just that word mental illness mm -hmm. most of us conjure up the idea of somebody you know homeless person walking down the street schizophrenic talking to themselves or somebody who's catatonic in a corner or sadly we think of somebody with a gun who's doing something absolutely horrible and evil in a public place and we go oh, that's not me you right. know that's not me right. or that's not my child or that's not my daughter or my husband and so there's this stigma that that that's what we're talking about when we talk about mental illness when as i said earlier it's on a spectrum right and it can occur from just really something that's that mildly affects your work or your your relationships or um, the way you do life to as my son was, severe mental illness. And so there's this spectrum. So when we remove the stigma, mm -hmm. we do something that is powerful. I mean, there's it's nothing revolutionary. More powerful. It does. It does. It revolutionizes. And it brings people from that, from the margins yes. and from the edges where they have lived basically of society. And it brings people into the embrace of the church where they're a part. And so again, costs no money, takes no staff, takes no training. I think what it really probably takes is a pastor who starts it in that church, who says, we are not going to be that kind of a church anymore. We are going to be a church that knocks down the brick wall of stigma. We are going to be a church that is embracing, that welcomes people as fellow human beings. So, so C-H-U-R, care help with practical needs, utilize volunteers, remove the stigma. And then um, the second C is to collaborate with the community because the church has such a vital role to play. I mean, I could talk for hours about that, but we can't do it alone. And so we have to, we have to build partnerships in the community because there's some great resources that already exist in every community, but we just have to figure out how to hook people together, how to connect them right. with those resources. And again, something that costs nothing is right. for a church volunteer to look through the phone book 
and write down a list of all the places that offer mental health services so that if somebody calls in and their family's having some sort of a mental health crisis, there's already a resource list that a volunteer has done that then the pastor or the church leaders or small group leaders can say, you know what? Hey, I've got three phone numbers here that I think would be helpful. It's simple, simple things of ways to collaborate in the community. And then um, the H, the last H, is to, to offer hope. Because again, this is something, this is where the church excels. We mess up, we don't do it right, we get stuff mixed up all the time, but something that the church can do and do well, different than anybody else, is to offer hope. We have the hope that that we have a God who is a God of compassion and He cares. Mm-hmm. We have a God who's gonna stand with us in, in our difficulties. We have a God that's gonna be with us it, um, not just this life, but the life to come. So the government can't offer that. You know, um, <laughs> your doctor can't really offer that. A program can't offer that. But the church and the message of the church can offer hope to people. And that's, at the end of the day, what we need. Because without hope, despair takes over, and you start to feel like um, there's really no reason to stay. There's no reason to hang on. There's no reason to keep trying because it's so hard. But when you have hope, and you know that you're gonna be surrounded by people who love you, accept you, who want you, who are gonna involve you in the life of the church, who are gonna care for you, who are gonna let you talk about your whole self and that you don't have to hide and pretend that you're gonna have people who'll say, I'm gonna journey with you every step of the way. Then hope is reborn in some of the most hopeless people on the planet and the church then becomes what it should be and people have what it takes to keep living their lives It's truly something that only the church can offer, and every church can do this. Well, that is the reason that we are a church. That in in the bigger picture, that um, the the community of Christians is a church is because we are the only ones to offer hope. It's not fixing someone. It's not saying here. I'm going to tell you how to how to fix yourself so you'll get right. up like I think you should get up or so right. you'll be doing things like I think you should do things. Get yourself out of the way. Right. And and serve. Yeah. Um a couple years ago and this is not something that I've talked about very often, but I'm starting to talk about it more and it's amazing what's coming out of the woodworks from it. I told my mom and dad that I really wanted them to talk about more than just my son's disabilities, Mm -hmm. even though they kept that very quiet and and respectfully so, I said, talk about the struggles openly. And in doing so, my mom shared that she had tried to take her life more than once. Wow. And my dad walked in to the house one night. He's trying to get through school, holding down a job, has a six-week-old daughter, a two-year-old son, and his wife is in the corner, curled up in a ball. Wow. Now, there are not a whole lot of people yeah. who knew that story. But when she shared it, it was the CD that people asked for the most. Because that's where they were, too. And they well, it gives people help. permission. And that's, that's, how, that's where leadership not just pastors, but church leaders. I mean, we're all leaders. We all have a voice. And when we use our voice to tell our real stories, our real struggles, our real hurts, not just the stuff that we think people want to hear or not just the stuff that we think they should hear, but like that story that your mom shared, oh my goodness, that is truly, she unleashed freedom in people. Total freedom. 
just total freedom by the virtue of her saying, this is where I struggled, this is what happened to me. And she didn't have to say, she didn't have to preach a big message out of that. She just had to say, this is where I lived, and this is where I nearly died, and here's where God met me, and here's how I am. And all of a sudden, everybody who heard that took a deep breath and thought, okay, maybe I'm not the only one. And no, that's where we get stuck. We start not. thinking we're the only ones. And he, Dad talks about having nowhere to go, and he it was pitch black outside, and he walked down the back of the alley. Wow. And um, he said, I started running. I didn't know where I was going. Hmm. I just ran. Hmm. And I ran until I fell over. Wow. And I had to walk back home. Wow. And then she had to be taken to a hospital. And her mom passed away when she was in the hospital. Wow. And um, she wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. Wow. And so these places in their lives have given yeah. space for them for them to come alongside my daughter mm -hmm. who didn't want to continue living. Yeah. And my son who has panic attacks. Yeah. And our situation yeah. and the situation that those who you're talking to or that I'm talking to or that I get to write and say there's hope because Christ never sleeps or slumbers. Right. He never goes away. He's right. always there with you. Um, Kay, you talk about the darkness in one of your talks that I listened to and how afraid of the dark you are. And there are times that God does heal and does provide dramatic healing for people like he did with your daughter or daughter-in-law and the birth mm -hmm. of their child and all. Yep. There are times where he does not choose to remove the darkness. And um, this morning, listening again to your talk on that, I just stopped walking on my treadmill and cried because in our situation, there are areas of our lives that have not gotten lighter, they've gotten darker. And so I've said to the Lord, I will choose to trust you even though yeah. this is harder than I can bear. So talk to the people who are in that darkness and they've, they've prayed and they've, they know all the verses and they know all the stuff and, and people have shunned them. and. It's yeah. dark in Psalm 13 and Habakkuk, two of my favorite passages you mentioned. Talk yeah. about that for us. Well, a few years before Matthew died, um, again, as I said, things were just getting darker and darker and darker. And um, I, I just I remember one night, late at night, I don't know why, but night times seem to be really tough. I think they are for a lot of people who are yeah. in grief or in depression or struggling. And um, so I... I just thought, God, I am in such darkness, I cannot even take the next step. And my son is in such darkness, you know, similar to what you're saying, just it's so dark and it's so dark for him and I don't know what to do. And so I have this program on my computer that allows me to search, you know, put in a word and then search every place that that verse is found. And so I decided that night I was not going to bed until I had done a study of every place in the Bible where it talks about <laughs> dark and darkness. And um, so I started in Genesis and I was finding all these verses Then some were comforting, some actually weren't. There were some verses where um, some of the prophets were saying, God, you, you hide yourself like a trench coat. You hide yourself um, from me. You put on a trench coat and you hide. That's like the message paraphrase of something. But I thought, yes, that's exactly right. That's the way I feel. I feel like you're hiding from me, God. And so I was compiling all these verses and I got to Isaiah 45, three, and um, it's a, 
God's talking to Cyrus. I mean, Isaiah's talking to Cyrus, who was a Gentile king, and is, it's a prophecy of, of what God's going to do through Cyrus. But that night when I was reading, I didn't care about Cyrus. I didn't care about prophecy. No. I wanted to know. I needed something right then in that moment. Right. And um, it says in 45.3, And I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, mm. secret riches. And I will do this so that you will know that I am the Lord your God, the one who calls you by name. Mm. And I was riveted that, by that because I had a you know, flood of thoughts all at once. And some of them were, okay, so this verse says there's treasures in the darkness. How can that be? Because to me, the darkness is like you alluded to, the darkness is scary to me. How could there be treasure, anything good hidden here? And on top of that, I have this feeling that the only place I'm going to find these treasures is in the darkness. And I don't want, God, in case you didn't hear, <laughs> I don't want to be in this darkness. I want yes. out of this darkness. I want you to take my son out of this darkness. The darkness is terrifying. I need out of here. And here's this verse that's saying, I'm going to give you treasure in the darkness. Um, riches hidden in secret places, NIV says. And I just, I kind of had this conversation with God that said, okay, this doesn't make sense to me, but your word is telling me this. It's the comfort of my soul. I'm going to start believing. I'm going to start looking for yep. treasures in the darkness. Yep. And the rest of the verse just quickly says, it, it shows God's just how big he is, his transcendence. It's like, I am, I am, so that you will know that I am the Lord, your God, you know, he's big. And then it says, who calls you by name? So it's like he goes from being this God who's so big, who can take this problem that's absolutely taking me to my knees, and God can do something about it. He's that big. He's transcendent. And he's also intimate. He's this God who calls you, calls me by name. He knows Matthew's name. And this God who's so big and yet so personal is also the God that's telling me there's stuff, there's, stuff, there's beauty hidden in this darkness, but you're going to have to look for it. And, and so I, I began a search and have kept notes since then, journal of treasures. There were the treasures of the darkness of mental illness. There were the treasures um, in the darkness of Matthew's death. There have been treasures in the darkness as we are learning how to live again um, in a new way. But, but all along, God has provided treasures. When Matthew was alive, there, was, there were the treasures of people who came alongside and who prayed for us. There was a list of, of uh, people that there were, again, many middle of the nights when he, things would just be so bad, and I would think he's right on the edge, and I don't know if I'll wake up tomorrow and he'll be here. And um, these were people that were confidential, that, that kept our story and his story private, and yet were on their faces for him and for us. And that was such a treasure to know we were not walking through that alone. And then when Matthew died, some of those treasures have been, as you can imagine, harder to find, and I haven't always been as willing to find them. But even in that darkness, there has been the treasure of knowing God more intimately than I've ever known him before. And I would not trade that treasure of knowing God intimately in a strange way. And now I'm messing up my makeup, so thanks, Colleen. In it's a okay strange to cry, by the way. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. I cry a lot. I want you to Rick, know we've had a lot of those dark nights, by the way. Yeah. If you, if you suffer, of course, there's dark nights. Um, I had one a couple Rick, weeks ago, in fact, and I just thought, I said to my husband, I think I'm going a little bit crazy. Yeah. Not that I'm already not a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going a little further than I, than but I was. But I'm, like, about over the edge because yeah. 
I'm too tired to even look for. It is. To look for those treasures. And I hear so you. I said to the Lord, I need you to bring it to me. Yeah. Yeah. And no, out, I of the, do. out of the blue, something happened. Yep. Yeah, there are amazing things. Other people who've told me when they've heard that, then they start looking for treasures. A, a woman who lost her husband said that, lost him suddenly. And she said, every time I walked into our bedroom, she said, I realized there was a treasure. He had just finished remodeling it. He had done, and he tried to make it really special for her. And so even though she said, when I first walk into the bedroom after he died, I'm thinking, I, I can't even be in here because here he had made this so special for me and now he's not here. And then she said, all of a sudden I realized what a treasure that every time I walk in here, I can think to myself, I was so loved. Mm. Look what he did for me. So she pulled a treasure, some friends who lost their dad to suicide talked about how that their lives were like the windshield of a car that had just been shattered into a million pieces. And and they said at first looking at at their lives and looking at this windshield with its shattered glass, if you would, she these these young women said, actually we started seeing no there's now a beautiful mosaic. Our lives have been broken into these pieces, but there's a mosaic of beauty that, that is coming even from our dad's death. So these treasures of darkness um, are there. They're no matter what the circumstance. It doesn't have to be a suicide. It doesn't have to be, you know, even mental illness. It can be anything that you're going through that creates this darkness for you to know that this transcendent God who's so big and yet is so personal is right there by our side saying, look for the treasures, look for the beauty. And let me tell you something. Don't say that to somebody else. Yeah. That's do, do not <laughs> look at a grieving person. Promise me, anybody who's here, promise me that you will not take this verse and use it as a whip against somebody because right. that is, that is not comforting. And it would not have been comforting if somebody had said to me, well, you just need to look for the good and the evil. You just need to look for the treasure and the darkness. Yeah. I'm no. sorry. That is not comforting in those moments. You're not I, you're not saying that. And I love that you included yeah. don't use the phrase at least. Yes. Because you might as well just shut your mouth from there on out. <laughs> you are not comforting to me. At least you have another child. At least you can have more kids. Exactly. I don't want another child. I don't want more kids. I've lost I the want one. The child I, loved. I had. Yes. That's I right. want I want my Matthew. I don't want another child. I want my Matthew. Um, and, and when we say at least, I think it's our way of minimizing um, right. people's grief because we don't know what to do with it. We right. don't know it's what to do with to those feel. feelings. So if we, if we can put a little, we can put a little fence around it by saying, oh, well, at least you had this or at least you had that or at least blah, blah, blah. Or the, the, the other one that's just drives me crazy is when people say, well, you know, God must have felt that he needed them more than <laughs> you did. And I want to go, really? God needed Matthew in heaven? I needed him here. What's uh, amazing I, is that you know the mind of God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get start so sarcastic, yeah. but I do want to say, saying nothing is better. Oh, than, or just to say what you said to me, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, I mean, you cannot go wrong by very gently and quietly looking somebody in the face or writing them a note that says, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah. My heart hurts with you. Done. Put a bow on it. That's I all just, you have to I say. I just sent that to a friend this morning. It's the anniversary of her father's death. Yeah. And I said, I'm here always. And I'm so, so sorry. It's, it's sufficient Send. most of the time. That's what worked. Well, we're coming, we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, 
Talk to us for just a minute, Kate. Talk to the person who is in that dark place. And I want to preface this by saying treasures are not the earthly treasures that God provides. Treasures like humor, treasures like the ability to empathize as you never would before. Your husband uh, referred to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 10, which is what I just spoke on on the Alaska cruise with Insight for Living. It's one of my favorite passages. The treasure, one of the greatest treasures is that from the comfort he gives us, we are then able to bring comfort to another. The very darkest, worst thing in someone's life right now may end up being the greatest treasure but it will not be a possession or a holdable thing. Talk about those kinds of treasures that you and Rick have found that provides hope for someone who is saying, it's black, I'm done, I'm tired, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, well, um, I think that in those darkest of places, as you said, Colleen, it's not that there there may be a tangible treasure. This friend that I said who, you know, has this beautiful bedroom um, that her late husband fixed for her, it's, it's a treasure, and she counts it sure. as a treasure. But more often than not, it's not those tangible things. It's it's that it goes back to, for me, to joy, to choosing joy, knowing who God is, the, the treasure of walking with God intimately. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm always happy with God, if you'll... Pardon You're kidding. Expre- no. <laughs> and so walking with him does not mean that I'm saying all the time, oh, God, I just love you so much, and, and you are just so amazing. Sometimes walking with God is, God, I do not get you. I do not understand you. And, in fact, I'm pretty mad about things right now, and you could have done this differently. I mean, but it's the fact that I know that God will never push me away. That's the treasure. That's the treasure, is the treasure is knowing that the relationship is so solid, I can beat my fists on his chest. I can can pound on Jesus' chest, but I'm in the security of his embrace. He's never going to push me away. He's never going to tell me to stop talking, zip it, you know, just be done. He Get over it. Get over it. Move on. God allows us to be close to him. He draws us close. And that is a treasure in the darkest times because we sometimes think that we can only, that to be close to God means that everything has to be positive in our relationship, that we have to be just singing praises. And um, you can sing praises and beat your fists on his chest at the same time. And that is a treasure that I would trade, I would not trade for for us, one of the treasures um, has been a deeper relationship in in our marriage. Mm-hmm. That does not happen for everybody, and and I, you know, I, I was fearful that that it wouldn't that that Matthew's death would actually pull us apart because we'd had so much conflict when he was alive over what to do, what how to react, but. In this process of grieving together, of of choosing to grieve together, um, we a treasure in it has been a closer relationship with my husband. How can I not be grateful for that? I am grateful for that. So I guess what I would say to anyone who's watching this is that you can be absolutely certain that the treasure that God speaks of in Isaiah 45 is for everyone. It's not just for me. It's not just for Colleen. It is for all of us. There is something in the dark place you're going through, this big God, call on him, ask him, have audacious faith, ask him to move the Red Sea for your family, ask him to change this, ask him to heal, 
ask big asks of God. He is that transcendent Red Sea God. And at the same time, know that whether he chooses to move your Red Sea or not, he will be with you. He is that intimate, intimate God. And um, so darkness is scary. Darkness is not a place we like to be. But in the darkness, we have his hand, solid and sure. Put your roots into him. Put your roots into his word. Put your roots into other relationships of people who are going to journey with you. Um, the darkness will end someday, which is probably the best treasure of all, is that this darkness will end. And we will, um, everything that doesn't make sense now, everything that's been broken, everything that is not repaired, everything that is so far from whole, God's got it. God's and, got it. And in that, it will end. And for some of us, it won't end until we are in heaven. Mm -hmm. And there's a purpose in that. I just had back surgery a couple months ago. I mentioned it to you a minute ago. Right. Forever, I will have back pain. That's just the way, to, unless God mm -hmm. intervenes, that's, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. But in that, the treasure is, I'm more honest with him about it. I'm gaining a sense of humor. I enjoy things that I can do more than I ever did before yeah. that I took for granted. I mean, those are all treasures. They are treasures, absolutely. Um, what I want to say, Kay, is first of all, thank you for being so vulnerable, so candid, so honest, and so transparent with what you have been through. And again, I want to say I'm so sorry. Thank you, Colleen. Um, thank you. That your heart had to hurt so deeply, mm -hmm. but it's providing hope for so many who would not otherwise have that. So thank you for allowing God to remain your God. Thank you. Okay, thank you so very much. Thank you. And I want to close by saying there's no way, um, because mental illness or mental wellness touches every family in one way or another, something I know has touched your heart. And I want you to get a hold of either Kay or me because we want to help you find your treasure of hope in the darkness. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Kay. It's been Thank great you. to talk Bless to you. you. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on reframing's activities and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.